Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. Welcome to this week's macro call. Leading the call this week will be Chris Erwinski, our lead international analyst, and Bart Oostervelt, who comes to ACG Analytics by the way of the Atlantic Council, and formerly having run Moody's uh, Sovereign Risk out of London. Also on the call today, we have John East, our head of research. It's certainly been a macro week. There are these, it's a rare moment where geopolitics is going to interfere with domestic policy. And to lead with that thought, I'd like to turn it over to Chris to lead today's discussion. Thank you very much, David, and thanks everybody for joining us. It is August, but you wouldn't really know it in D.C. based upon everything that's happening both in the United States and around the world. So uh, we have a lot to cover. And John, I'd you know get your take here. While August recess is supposed to be a little bit slow, the rest of the calendar leading into the fall from a legislative perspective uh, is going to be anything but slow. Why don't you give us a little bit of a preview as to what to expect? Well, the calendar is not slow right now. And so the House is breaking from its recess to reconvene on Monday. There is an attempt to pass budget reconciliation instructions in the House. It is not clear that there are enough votes there to do so. Unless something breaks in the next few days, it's going to be a long week in the House. And then we're going to be beholden to a very long September with the expiration of government funding the need to pass debt limit increase and other battles in Congress, including Afghanistan. So I, w- I want to go into a couple of those in a little bit more detail here, but let's let's just start with you know our expectation for both the bipartisan infrastructure agreement and also the reconciliation bill. Right now, in our in our policy percentages note, thank you for for taking the lead on that. It comes out every Wednesday morning. You know our expectation still is that both the bipartisan bill and the reconciliation bill will be passed in all likelihood, by the end of October or early to mid-November. You know, and that's both bills. So tell me, how do we possibly overcome, you know, Pelosi's insistence that both agreements go at the same time? I mean, is that going to be the schedule for the fall? Will these go together, or is there a chance that the moderates can push her to uh, to change her, her thought process? Well, we've been fairly consistent for a number of months saying that it's going to become more and more difficult for Speaker Pelosi to hold off on bringing the bipartisan bill to the floor. You see the Republican attack ads writing themselves, and now you have nine members, and the Speaker can afford to lose no more than three, saying that they are not going to vote on reconciliation instructions if they can't get a vote on the bipartisan bill. That doesn't mean that the bipartisan bill can pass. President Trump is actively campaigning against it, and that's holding down the votes in the House. And you have the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, 93 members officially, and about 60 of them are saying that they're not going to lend their votes. If you can't make that up on the Republican side, then I'm trying to count the votes here, and that's a job that uh, no one wants in D.C. right now in such an evenly divided House Democratic majority, but I don't see us getting to 218. And so right now it looks like no vote, no bill, neither the bipartisan bill nor 
the 3.5 trillion partisan bill under reconciliation has the votes to pass. So something has got to break in the next couple of days, or you will have a show vote and allow the moderates to demonstrate that they at least tried and then proceed with the plan, which is to pass both at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's still the expectation there that the path forward is unclear, but a path will emerge. And that's pretty much what, you know, a lot of these lawmakers are using August 4 is to determine how they actually intend to move forward with both bills. Now, David, you know, you've talked about this. Afghanistan, uh, you know, I don't want to go into the, the specifics of what a national tragedy and embarrassment it is, but, you know, in your eyes, how does it impact this legislative calendar that we have upcoming? Well, Chris, we had a very challenging legislative calendar without the debacle in Afghanistan. The, 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 where Afghanistan comes into the picture, the, the interesting point here is you're going to have at least three committees in both houses, which are controlled, obviously, by the Democrats investigating a Democratic president and his, and his policies. That is a huge bandwidth problem for Congress, which is always challenged to do any more than one thing or half a thing at the same time. Uh, we have the Armed Services Committees in both chambers. We have the Intel Committee, and we have the Foreign Affairs Committees in both chambers. So with this level of testimony happening, and not to mention the, the really disturbing scenes coming out of Afghanistan, it's going to be a politically fraught month. Let me, John, I'd like to go back to you a second, uh, your keen observer of American politics and the Capitol Hill in the legislative process, Joe Biden's popularity has now slipped under 50%. It was my understanding that there was supposed to be a scheduled call, which was called off by Speaker Pelosi with the president for her caucus. Do you consider his his ability to influence the legislative process unchanged or diminished? Unfortunately, I, I believe it's diminished. We just have no room for error in the Senate, and almost no room for error in the House. So any time that the president's popularity slips, so does, too, his political capital. This could not come at a more misopportune time for the president. But I'm curious, you know, what you think about the practical impact of this for the Biden foreign policy agenda and for the U.S. position in the world? Well, look, it's a dangerous world out there. It's certainly the, our European allies who he wants to, you know, his, he ran on uh, multilateralism, strengthening the NATO. European leadership called this uh, the worst uh, moment in the history of NATO. Potentially embolden the Chinese. Uh, there are, I don't believe that they're going to invade Taiwan next week. I mean, that's, of course, some market speculation about that. But it makes, I think, the South China Sea even more dangerous. And, of course, it reinforces the narrative of the Chinese that the United States is a diminishing empire, to use their own words. So that makes the world less safe. Call that this will contribute to a more dangerous world where Joe Biden could be tested by adversaries and at the same time having a much more complicated domestic public policy apparatus than he was planning on. If Afghanistan once again becomes you know, a terrorist breeding ground and if the United States is forced to reengage, what that looks like, or you know, whether or not this signals the start of the pivot that the United States military has been looking to begin towards you know, China and the Asia-Pacific and out of the Middle East. So the entire U.S. posture post-Afghanistan is called into question. Now, Bart, as we shift internationally here, uh, I'm interested in your viewpoint if you view anything differently than what David, John, and I have said here about you know the U.S. role and, and how the rest of the world is seeing this. 
just like the Biden administration was caught off guard by how quickly this devolved, so were the European allies that were involved on the ground, you know, much smaller numbers, but a variety of military and NGOs, thousands of people. So at the moment, everybody's focused on extraction of their own citizens. After that, I think the hard questions will be asked, you know, what does this mean the next time there's an international coalition to be put together to board off some threat. I, I wanted to echo kind of, I think, the broader point because the, the Europeans will always be eager to work with the Biden administration. They have been since the beginning. But I think the risk of the North Koreans or the Iranians or, God forbid, the Chinese underestimating the U.S. at the moment is really elevated. But there's a lot of references now in the press as well to, to Saigon 1975 and a lot of writing off of, of U.S. leadership. People consistently underestimate the American rebound Yes, Saigon happened, and there was a similar mood in the country after that, and defeatism. But 15 years later, the Berlin Wall fell. So there was there was certainly a rebound in terms of leadership and policy. And there's no reason to assume that that won't happen this time around. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.